Good. How you guys doing? You doing all right? Yeah? My name is Brady. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, the campus pastor at our campus for Walt Disney World cast members. Uh, and I was thinking about that song, Sovereign. And, and that really can be a really scary song to sing if you don't have a proper view of God. Because you don't want there to be a sovereign uh, person who is in control that is mean, right? That, that is bad, that doesn't want our good. But I love that our God is so deeply good. I mean, good beyond what we can imagine. Like the purest sense of good times a million. And because he is good and because he loves us, we can trust and we can sing praises to the sovereign God. I don't know if you know this, but the story of Scripture, it is the story about God. In the beginning, God. Yeah, that was, that was your cue. Sorry, I did, we, didn't, we didn't go over cues beforehand, but uh, we'll do that later. Uh, in the beginning, God. God, that was unbelievable. Give yourself a hand. No, don't do that. Don't do that. We don't clap in church. This is, stop, stop. Too much interaction. This is bad. Okay, so the story is about God, and we've been, we've been talking about this story for probably six years now. We, we've gone from Genesis, and we're headed to the maps, and we're going to go all the way through, and for the last year, we have been in the book of Acts, and Acts is basically the story of the church, the story of the beginnings of the church to its growing and expanding throughout all of the Roman Empire. And we've seen some pretty amazing things. This body of believers, this church of men and women is extraordinary. What we have seen from this church that that, that typified these people in the first century is, is this uncommon generosity. This fact that if someone was in need, someone would say, hey, I will sell my house and give you that, which is what we experience every day in our church, right? Right, there's people selling their houses right and left for other people. No, that's not happening. That was, that was, that was not true. But, but how crazy was that? Could you imagine being, living in that time with people that were so passionate about Jesus, so captivated by this God that they said, if someone is in need, I'll sell whatever I have to to provide for their needs because in the kingdom of heaven, no one should be needy. They had this uncommon love for one another, the way that they spoke towards one another, the way they treated one another. They had this uncommon boldness with the way that they shared their faith in in the face of of persecution. And it was amazing how the church began to grow and expand throughout all of Judea. It expanded into Samaria, and it began expanding into the Gentile realm. And then we got to Acts chapter 12. And Acts chapter 12 we had to step back. It was like a punch in the gut. Because what happened in Acts chapter 12, we saw that Herod the king took James, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. In fact, there, there are times when Jesus would take three guys to different spots with him, you know, into, into a room where he raised a girl from the dead or onto the mountain of transfiguration. And it was always these three guys, Peter, James, and John. These were the guys that Jesus poured everything into. And these were the guys, if you were, if you were living in that day and age, you think they were untouchable. I mean, if God protected anyone, they would protect Peter, James, and John. I mean, these were the pillars of the early church. That's what I would have thought. That's what I would have felt. And, and Herod, the king, took James, the brother of John, and killed him. Could you imagine what that must have been like, what that must have felt like? That although there had been persecution, I mean, there were people that were off limits. There were, there were, there was, there were limits that God wouldn't allow the enemy to go. And now you're thinking, no one's safe. No one's, no one's okay. 
Everyone's looking over their shoulder when, when, they're, when their kids and their parents and their friends and their neighbors are being dragged off into prison. Who knows what's going to happen? They might be killed. Even James was killed. And then Peter, Peter gets in prison and he gets freed by this angel, but then it would seem like he kind of goes into hiding. So James gets killed and from, you know, from the outside perspective, it seems like Peter's in, in hiding. Well, what do we do now? The only way that I can really grasp this, really understand the way that they were feeling is to think about September 11th, 2001. Before September 11th, September 10th, I was never afraid to go to work because I was too young to work. But I was never afraid to go to a sporting event. I was never afraid to go to a concert. I was never afraid to go to school. I was never afraid to go to the airport, which by the way, took half the time to get from you know, the beginning of the airport to the airplane. But September 11th happened. September 11th happened and terrorism was no longer over there. We were no longer saying, we knew about terrorism and it was bad and we didn't like it, but we, we weren't worried about it until we left the borders of America. And now terrorism had hit our borders, had come to America. Now no one is safe because who knows? Apparently our FBI and our CIA and our police force, but apparently they can't stop all the terrorism. And the feeling that happened that day and the weeks after that was that no one is off limits. I mean, no one is safe. It could happen to anyone. That, that's the feeling that's going on in the church at that moment. What do we do? The, one of the greatest leaders in the early church at that point was a guy named James, not the one who was killed, not the brother of John, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, by the way, when Jesus was alive on this planet, he didn't believe in him. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, what he saw was so utterly life-altering that he became one of the leaders of the church. And so at this point, he decides, hey, I need to write a letter to all of the church scattered abroad, to all the people that are hearing these things, all these people, all the people that are feeling these things. And he begins to write the letter, the book of James, right around this time. And he says, hey, I know trials are everywhere, but stand steadfast because what the enemy is using to destroy you, God is using to perfect you, to complete you. What the enemy is using to halt the, the, the goals of God, God is using to expand the gospel. It's amazing. So stand steadfast. Understand the truth of what is actually going on. When, when, when you're looking into the word of God and you see what it says, live it out because it's the real truth of the God of the universe. He said, okay, although it seems like outside, outside of the church is where the enemy is, it seems like he's only coming from the outside. Remember that the enemy wants to destroy you from within. He hates the movement of God and the easiest place for him to destroy it is to cause disunity in the body because when there isn't unity in the body of Christ, the mission of God halts. So James says, you've got to be careful about what you say. Your tongue is a powerful weapon, a powerful weapon. Don't use it for the enemy. Don't use it to disrupt the body and disrupt the mission. Use it to build up, to encourage. There's war going on. I don't know about you, but when everything in my life tends to go uh, awry, when things are going wrong, when things aren't going well, 
I get very introverted. I, I, look, I look to myself. I think about myself. I take care of myself. I, I want to control as much as I can control. And so it's all about me. Uh, it, this happens when I get sick. Uh, I, I hate getting sick. I hate it. Absolutely. It's the worst. And, and this week I got sick. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, I was laying in bed and, you know, I had my pillows all propped up exactly the way they needed to be. I had my, my robe on and I had my airplane pillow around my neck. And I had, I had my emergency and I had my airborne and I had my Zycam. I had my water and my Gatorade and my Tylenol cold and flu. I had it all. Okay, I, mean, I was prepared because I don't like being sick. But when I get sick, I take care of myself. And when I get sick, I expect everyone else to take care of me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the way it should be. And so my wife comes home from work and I'm, I'm pathetic. Like, oh, 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 and I just kind of make noises rather than speak because it makes me feel, you know, you know, it makes me think that I, I'm more sick than I am. And she comes in and she, she, she lays down and she says, oh, Brady, I'm so sorry, but I have got the worst headache. I mean, this migraine. I said, no, <laughs> no, you're stealing my sick thunder. When, I, when I'm sick, you take care of me. When you're sick, I'll take care of you. That's not fair. That is not fair. And that's the way that I felt. And it's some of the things that I said. <laughs> because I was, you know, it's about me. But isn't the way we get when our world begins to crumble around us, it becomes all about us and we take care of ourselves and we think everyone should revolve around us because it's our world that is crumbling. James begins to talk about this. Why don't you grab your Bible? Uh, if you don't have one, you can snatch up one of the beautiful blues. It's gonna be on page 655, James chapter four. If you don't have one of these, it's after Hebrews because everyone knows where that is. By the way, if you don't have one of the, a Bible at home, feel free to take one of these at home. We want you to, to, to read this. This is a, a page turner. James chapter four, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Okay, your, your tongue, it's a deadly weapon. It's gonna, there's gonna be lots of quarrels happening because of what you say. But what is behind that? What is the cause? And what we all think is, well, it's obviously not me. I'm not the problem. I, I'm, I'm definitely not the problem. Well, when things go wrong, what do we do? We point fingers, we shift blame. You know, when the economy's going bad, it's the president's fault. It's the government's fault. And when the, there's something wrong with the government, it's definitely the Republicans' fault or, or the Democrats' fault. Or maybe it's the crazy Tea Party's fault. I mean, it's always somebody else's fault. And when it gets close to home, it's definitely not my fault. It was the way that I was raised. It's my parents' fault. My parents' fault. They, 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 they spanked me or they didn't spank me. They didn't discipline me. They gave me too much. They spoiled me. I mean, every excuse, we, there's every excuse that you could have. It's not me. It's my heritage. I mean, this has been this way for generations. So it's not my fault. And, and really, I mean, it's my genetics. And I can't help my genetics. I mean, that's just, it's just a part of me, every part of me. But still, it's not my fault, right? Definitely not my fault. And, and James goes ahead and confirms that. Verse two, it is definitely not your fault. No, he doesn't say that. He says, is it, he says, is it not this, and this is verse one, that your passions, your, your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
and you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is saying something completely revolutionary here, something that is unbelievably countercultural in our society. He's saying that your feelings aren't always right. What? Because that's not the message that we hear in our society. And the message that we hear in our society is that our feelings, our emotions, our passions, our urges, that's the most important thing about us. That, that should define us. And so I jumped on YouTube last night and I got a couple clips together that I want to show you that really typify the message that we hear in our society, in our culture about our feelings. So why don't you go ahead and play that for us. Emotions are a key part of being a human being. Um, our heart and our chest is also a brain and can also receive and understand information. So the first thing to really look at with feelings, and, and I really like to use the analogy of a color wheel, is, is that all emotions or feelings are, are neutral. The thoughts that you're having are just the thoughts that you're having. And they're so important to listen to, whether you feel they're good feelings or bad feelings, we want to be able to accept them. We want to be able to acknowledge them and embrace them. So and all emotions are like a ringing telephone. It's like picking up the telephone and getting the message that emotions trying to give us. Don't get me wrong, facts are very important. But if you're asking what's a bit more important, I'd say feelings are more important. So it's very, very important that we not fight the truth, but instead that we embrace the truth of our feelings. Our suffering comes in when we feel like we should not be feeling what we're feeling, or that it's somehow not okay, or that we're ashamed of it, or embarrassed of it, that uh, it, it is that resistance to the feeling uh, that, that really causes us pain. And to really just allow yourself to experience your feelings, please don't numb them, Please don't beat yourself up for having the feelings. Please don't say things like I shouldn't or this is wrong. I it's again, it's in the resistance to the feeling. If we think I shouldn't be feeling this way, that's where our struggle begins. I believe that my heart can see much farther than my mind. Trust your feelings, trust your intuition, and trust in the flow. Facts are important. But feelings are more important. Totally. Yeah, and that's how we do science. I, I feel like the earth is flat, so it is. Uh, emotions, they're like colors. I mean, just, just different colors. They're, they're not good or bad. They're just colors. I love this. This is the message that we get sent, that our feelings aren't, aren't good or bad. That, that they're the most important thing about it is that they define us don't let anyone tell you what you feel is wrong. We have uh, from Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Andrew Lord Weber says, you are what you feel. Uh, the Goo Goo Dolls say, what you feel is what you are and what you are is beautiful. Phil Collins says, if you feel it, do it. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, do what you feel in your heart to be right. This is what we do. We allow our feelings, our emotions, our urges to be our compass, to point our true north, to let us know where we ought to go, to let us know what decisions we should make. Because I feel in love, I'll get married. Because I feel like cheating, I'll cheat. Because I feel like getting divorced, because I fall out of love, I'll get divorced. If, if, I, if I feel a certain way, I will pursue after it. If I feel like going to this college, I'll go to that college. Or I'll major in this major, I'll pursue after this career. Or I'll do... Whatever it is, it's all about our feelings. 
The problem is, Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceptive above all else. We have these feelings, we have these desires, we have these urges, and not all of them should be followed. And yet that's not the message that the world is telling us. But this is what James is saying. It's so countercultural. Your feelings aren't always the best judge of what you should do. And he begins to get into this idea that Paul talks about is that we have this old self. We have this old flesh. And, and we were dead in our transgressions, but now we're alive in Christ. Right? The old self, now we've got a new self. But what happens is there were a lot of patterns of behavior. There were a lot of habits that we got into. There were a lot of ruts that we formed that we tend to go back to. And our emotions are easily tricked into longing for the old ways. Anyone else feel that besides myself? It's, it's really easy to feel the old ways because the old ways are easy. The old ways can seem very attractive. And so, and so James is saying, hey, you can't always listen to your emotions. They're not always your guiding principle or your true north. That, that's not what should be. He says there's another enemy going on. If you, if you go back to four, he says in, in verse four, you adulterous people, in the sweetest way possible, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's beginning to paint this picture that there is the world and there is God and they are against one another. And that if we are, are desiring to be a friend of the world, to pursue after the world, we become an enemy of God. So I think it's pretty important that we figure out what he means by the world. Uh, in scripture, there are a number of meanings when it, when it talks about world. Uh, for instance, in Matthew, uh, he says, uh, the devil took Jesus up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So what he means there is the earth. He was up on a high mountain. He looked at all the kingdoms of the earth. So one meaning for the world could be the earth. So is, is this what's God meaning? Are we against the earth? Uh, there, there's another meaning for world. Uh, in John uh, he talks about, he says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and this, this, this sentiment is echoed in, in Tim Tebow's favorite verse, First uh, John, John 3.16. He didn't write it, by the way. Uh, For God so loved the world, there we go. There we go. I, I, I got mixed up on my signals on that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So what that meaning is, is kind of humanity. It's not, it's not that God sent his son for the planet Earth or, 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 that, or that Jesus saved the planet Earth, although you know, there are some implications of that. But here it's talking about more humanity. So you've got the planet Earth, you've got humanity, and then there's a third meaning for the world. And we find this in Matthew uh, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower and he said there was some seed that was thrown among the thorns. And, and what this means is this is the one who hears the word and the cares of the world, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is also in 1 Corinthians. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish 
made foolish the wisdom of the world. So there's wisdom of the world. There, there's there's this, this system of beliefs, this system, this way of living that is contrary to the purposes of God. And it is controlled by the devil himself, the, the prince of darkness, peddling his influence on us. You know, there's this system of beliefs, this way of living that is contrary to the purposes of God. So, so which one is it? Well, we know in the context, it's definitely not the, the earth. I mean, it's not that we should, you know, pollute our earth and strip mine our earth and burn all the Priuses around, right? We should take care of the planet. That's a, that's a good thing. It's not that we should hate the planet. God didn't hate the planet. And we know it's not humanity because for God so loved the world, God so loved humanity. And if God loves humanity, we should love humanity. And uh, it also echoes in Ephesians. It says that our war isn't against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. So what this means is we're against this system of beliefs, this ideology, this way of living that is contrary to the purposes of God, against the kingdom of God. And if we desire to pursue after that, if we desire to immerse ourselves in that, if we desire to be a part of that, we are, what James is saying, making ourselves an enemy of God because those that are children of God love God. So, so there's this, there's this, this, these passions in ourselves that, that, you know, get back into the ruts. And then there's the influence of the enemy that is also pulling us this way. And this is what is causing all the turmoil within us. James continues on uh, in, uh, I'm, I'm not there. He continues on. He says he yearns, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Well, when I think about all that's going on, I begin to, to look at what Paul said. You know, he's talking about the old man and he's talking about the new man. He's talking about the flesh. And, and, and it concerns me because Paul in Romans says, I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do that which I hate. And I think to myself, wait a second. That's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul that suffered more things than I could imagine for the sake of the gospel, who stood firm, who stood steadfast in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering for the gospel. And even Paul is saying, I don't do the things that I want to do. Sometimes I fall. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I sin. And I, I ask myself, if Paul can't do it, what hope is there for me? I sure hope James has some good advice for us. He does. I read it before. In verse six, he says, but God, but he, God, gives more grace. I read over that a, a number of times this week and, and I just kind of, just blew by it. Man, but yesterday, this really hit me. You've got the God of the universe, the, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, God who doesn't need us. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our worship. He's completely self-sufficient. He's got all the love within the Trinity that he could ever want. And yet this God, out of an overflow of love, created the world, created humanity. And yet humanity rebelled against God, rebelled against God and pursued after their own way, their own divinity, followed after their passions, their urges, their desires, and became an enemy of God. Now, God has already given loads of grace in this moment just by loving humanity, just by creating humanity. 
But God gives more grace and he pursues after humanity, continues to pursue after humanity even though they rebel. The picture that we see of this in Hosea is this man who, who get, takes this wife and she goes and cheats on him. And God says, go back and get her and love her. And he does. And she continues in this pattern and he continues to love her. This is the picture that we see for God loving us. That while we are pursuing after ourselves, pursuing after idols, he's still pursuing after us, loving us. And then he gives more grace. He sent his son. The, the fullness of God himself, Jesus on this planet, to live a perfect life, to take our sin upon himself. And then he gives more grace. He gives us his righteousness. He takes us from the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of light. He takes us from the kingdom of death and puts us in the kingdom of life. And yet, how often do we still fall? Do we still fall away? Do we still pursue after our feelings, listen to our urges and our desires? And James says, God gives more grace. Who does that? No one does that. No one lives that way. No one is that graceful. No one is that forgiving. Why would the God of the universe do this for me? I mean, I, I'm not that great. I, I know I look that way, but I'm not. I'm really, really not. I don't look that way. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you devil-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James says, start out with this, that there is a God and it's not you. There's a God in heaven and it's not me. He says, humble yourselves. Just consider the possibility that what you think might be wrong, that what you do might be wrong, that the things that you say might be wrong. Consider the possibility that you're not always right. Consider the possibility that you're not God. Get a good view of who you really are, that you are human, that you are fallible, that you are finite. Humble yourselves. And he says, submit. Submit to the truth. Submit to God, the truth of God. And how do we know what that is? I mean, if, if our passions, if our, if our desires, if our urges aren't always right, how do we know the truth of God? One thing that we talk about at Mosaic a lot is kind of this triple threat idea. We've got the spirit of God, we've got the word of God, and we've got the community of God. And all three of those protect one another. For instance, we've got the Spirit of God inside of us. But sometimes I don't distinguish well between what the Spirit is leading me to do and what my flesh is leading me to do. Anyone else has experienced that? So, so how do I know? Well, we've got the Word of God. We've got the truth of God's Word right here that God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And this is true and this is authoritative. This is awesome. The only problem with the Word of God is not the Word of God, it's me. Right? How many misinterpretations come from this? How many different, different uh, cults do we have branching out from Christianity because of misinterpretations of this? How many times do you go to the gym, obviously around January 1st because you've made a New Year's resolution, 
and you see a guy doing the bench press and he's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he thinks he can get five more pounds by chanting this verse. That's not what it means. That's not what it's about. Paul says, hey, I've been without and I've, and I've had stuff. And it doesn't matter if I don't have, it doesn't matter if I have, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I don't have food, I can get by because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not, I can get 10 more pounds on my bench max, right? And yet, how often is scripture taken out of context? How often have people been hurt by misinterpretations of scripture? So what else do we have? We've got the community of God, the church of God, the body of Christ filled with the spirit of God. And so we do all of these in unison together. We interpret scripture within the community. We interpret scripture with how scripture has been interpreted throughout the history of Christianity. We interpret the spirit inside of us, what we think he's leading us to do through scripture and through the community. We interpret the community through the spirit and through the scripture. This is how we do it. We do it together. And when we come to a knowledge of the truth, then we have to say, yes, sir. Don't you hate that? This word, this word submit, ah. Isn't that the, just the thing that wives are supposed to do, right? I mean, no, no. We are all supposed to submit one to another. All of us submitting one to another. We're supposed to have the attitude in ourselves that was also in Jesus who was God and yet submitted himself to the death of humanity. We are supposed to submit ourselves like that to the truth of God's word, to the community, to the spirit inside of us, guiding us. Humble ourselves, submit to the truth, resist the devil. I think about Jesus and he was in the wilderness. Uh, after 40 days, he, he was fasting for 40 days and it says he became hungry. I could imagine. Probably thirsty too. Okay, so, so he's in the wilderness. He's hungry and the enemy comes to tempt him. And the enemy tempts him with three different temptations. And every time Jesus refutes him with what? The word. Anybody know what book he quotes from? Deuteronomy, I heard that. He's so smart. How many of us, how well would we do if we were, you know, our spiritual life was based on our knowledge of Deuteronomy? Any, anyone feel, feel comfortable in resisting the devil and just that? Yeah, me too. Okay, so, but here's the thing. Jesus, he knew what the truth of God was and he knew what the lies of the enemy were. He could distinguish between the two and that's how we resist the devil. We understand who we are in Christ. We understand what the truth of God is and we understand what the temptations of the enemy are. And we, and, we, and we resist. We say, no, that's not the truth of God. No, that's just my passions. No, those are the ruts that I've been living in. That is not the truth of God's word. My feelings may be wrong and I'm gonna submit myself to the truth and resist the enemy and he will flee from you. And then James brings it home. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He says, draw near to the God of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, and he will draw near to you. He promises he will draw near to you. This is the key to it all. 
Intimacy with God is the way that we produce transformation, that God produces transformation within our hearts, within our lives. Intimacy with the God of the universe changes our desires for the things of this world, the passions of our flesh, of our old self. I don't know if you know this, but we were created with an infinite need, with an infinite void inside of us that can only be filled with the infinite. And God did this in love. Because if you are the God of the universe and you are all sufficient, if you are all satisfying, if you are pure goodness and pure joy, then the most loving thing you can do is create beings that won't be satisfied with anything less than the fullness of joy. Do you see how loving God is in the way that he created us? He won't allow us to settle for won't, what won't satisfy. To, 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 to settle for what is less than fullness of joy, fullness of goodness, experiencing God's presence. This is what God has said. We, we can't be satisfied with the things of this world. And that's what this world tells us though. It says, you know, pursue after fame, pursue after money, pursue after sex, pursue after uh, whatever, pursue after power, and that will fill you. And we find ourselves so often continuing to pursue after those things. And yet God says, those things will not satisfy. You have got an infinite void inside of you and it will only be filled, it will only be filled by me. But the enemy's good. I mean, not, not good in the good sense like God, but he's, he's crafty. He's skillful at what he does. It started in the Garden of Eden, advertising. I mean, advertising is the oldest profession in, in the Bible, in the history of humanity. He says, hey, look at this apple. It looks good. It looks tasty. It will give you what you want. Price, one soul. And we're like, oh, that's a steal. You know, I mean, I don't know if they made that sound when they bit, but they might have. But this is what he does. He tries to trick us into saying, God is holding out on you. God doesn't want your good. He doesn't want to give you fullness of joy. So pursue after other things. Friendship with the world, pursuing after the enemy's way of living makes us an enemy of God. But intimacy with God protects us from these things. The way that I, I see it is there's this, this giant table in front of us, this amazing table, and it is filled with the most amazing foods from Texas Day Brazil and, and Ohana and whatever restaurant you love. Just amazing stuff, just, just perfect for you. The things that only you love. I mean, just like a gigantic, amazing, just juicy steak. Or if you're a vegetarian, whatever you like. <laughs> And, and we've got this, and it's got these appetizers that are just, oh, just so great. And, and they're so good that you don't want you, you to fill too much up on the appetizers because you've got the main course. And then you don't want to fill too much up on the main course because at the end you've got this caramel brownie delightfulness. Sunday, it's so decadent. And, and, you know, bread pudding with bananas, foster delightfulness. I mean, it's just, can you imagine can, I mean, can you picture this, your favorite food? I mean, this is this food that is so good and, and, and you're gonna have this tonight. And so, and so what you do all day to prepare for that is you get your Cheetos and you eat your Cheetos and you eat your saltine crackers and then, and then you've got, you know, your lollipop and, and your suckers and, and, and these different little candies and these things that, that's not what we do. Whenever I'm going to Ohana, which is rare, I, mean, I like starve myself for a week because I know it's so good and I know there's so much food waiting for me. 
But that's not the way that we live. God has got this amazing table set out before us. And yet we fill ourselves with all this stuff that cannot satisfy. Anyone familiar with the cheese puff? (laughs) Cheese puff, I don't know if it was invented by David Blaine or David Copperfield, but you take this thing, this food, you think, you put it in your mouth and it disappears. (laughs) And, And it gives you no filling whatsoever. And yet there's something in it. Maybe it's cocaine, but it makes you want more and more and more and more. And you never get filled. You never get satisfied, but you do get a stomach ache. And this is what we are doing. God has got the most amazing meal prepared for us that will satisfy the infinite void in our soul. And yet we snack on all these things and spoil our appetite. My, my sister, uh, she, she raised her kids uh, in this really unique way. And she has the cutest little kids. Uh, they're, they're awesome. Uh, but I remember when they were about two years old, they, they were walking, and I, I don't know ages of kids, so who knows, they might have been 13, but <clears throat> they had just started walking and they just kind of could talk. Uh, and they were, you know, really short, really cute, big old eyes. And, and obviously, you know, this world is an adult world, so there are things adult height that they couldn't reach because they, they were short. You know, they were, they were height impaired at that time. And so what she taught them to do was to say, little help, please. L- little help, please. And I mean, the cutest thing ever. I mean, you got this little, little kid with the big eyes going, little help, please. <laughs> Uncle Beatty, little help, please. And you just melt and you know, yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, for sure. Have you ever met someone that was in love with God? Have you ever met someone that was completely satisfied, that was feasting at that table, that was, that was enjoying the fullness of his desire, the fullness of joy, that was completely captivated by Jesus? You ever met someone like that? You ever spoken to someone like that? I, I, I listened to this guy speak one time. He came to this, this small chapel service we had, and he was one of those guys. I mean, he was just, he was just captivated by Christ. There was a look in his eyes. It was just, it was just different. He lived his life uh, as, as a unique missionary. What, what he had done was he just didn't know that he, he was like, I'm not very gifted. I, I can't do much, but there's something that I can do. I can carry a cross. And for some reason, he felt the Spirit of God leading him to just carry a cross across these different countries, across South American uh, countries, across European countries. And even one time, he, he did it through Iraq, right when things were getting bad under George Bush, right before we were gonna go in there. He went through Iraq carrying the cross of God. And he has some of the most amazing stories I've ever heard, seeing miracles of Jesus, but even though those stories were amazing, and I was, I mean, I was dumbfounded by some of those stories, I was so captivated by what I saw in him, a soul that was actually satisfied, that had feasted on God, the, the, the joys, the, the peace, the, the, the kindness, the goodness, the, the, the fulfillment of all his desires, and, and he, was, he was just there pursuing after Jesus and all these things of this world. It was, it was nothing. I mean, even the miracles that happened and even the, the difficulties and the persecutions and the imprisonments that he endured, it was like, it was all just for Jesus. And I know Jesus better and I love Jesus and I saw it and it sparked something in my soul and I wanted it so bad. 
And I sat there in, in, in the pew afterwards and I just bawled. I mean, just cried and sobbed and there was snot coming on my face, out of my nose, just like, a, like just really manly. And, and I was sobbing and I was sobbing because I wanted it and I knew I needed it, but I couldn't do it. I, I, I couldn't go there. I couldn't allow myself to go there. There were too many things in this world that I wanted too much. I couldn't give myself fully to God because I, I enjoyed being impure with my girlfriend and I, and I enjoyed my anger and I, and I loved gossip. And I just couldn't do it. And I wanted it, but I couldn't do it. And I remember crying out to God, I want to want you. I want to desire you, but I don't. Help me. And it reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Mark. There's this father, he's got this son who is uh, possessed by a demon that makes him mute and then it, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he goes through these convulsions and you can tell the dad loves his son so much. I mean, he loves his son so much that he'll do anything to get in front of this rabbi that might be able to heal him. And he says, Jesus, please heal my son. And he says, do you believe and I can feel that dad taking a step back and searching his heart, counting what he's got and saying, I, I, I don't have it. I, I, I mean, I, I do believe, but, but help my unbelief. And that's me. I'm crying out and I say, help me because I can't do it. God, my circumstances are too difficult. The things that are going on don't allow me to pursue you in the way that I know I need to. I know I need it. I've tasted your goodness, but I need more. God, I don't have the desire that I want. I don't have the hunger that I want, the thirst that I need for you. I know you're all satisfying, but I'm just not there. Help me. And I think God looks down on us and he sees a little bitty kid going, Little help, please. And he says, of course. Of course I'm going to help you. Of course I'm going to give you more grace. Because my grace will never run out. It never gives up. It never runs out on you. His love never fails. His love never gives up. His love never runs out on you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how many times you've failed. It doesn't matter what you feel inside, the thoughts that you have thought. His love never gives up. It never fails. It never runs out on you. And it'll never run out on me. That's the God that we talk about. That's why we're here. That's why we sing praise songs. Because we have a God whose love will never give up on me. He pursues after me and he gives me more grace and more grace even though I fail, even though I fall. He just wants us to say, a little help please. Heavenly Father, God, I'm in awe of you, of your love and your grace, your loving kindness that is everlasting, your faithfulness that is to all generations. God, thank you that you love me and that your love will never run out and that you always have more grace. And no matter how much I feast upon the meal that is you, the, the fulfillment of all my desire, there's still more for me to have. 
thank you that you desire to give me the fullness of you. Father, captivate our gaze. Give us a hunger, an unquenchable thirst for you. Don't let us be satisfied with the things of this world that are not you, with the things that are bad for us or the things that, that are good but are not you. Don't let us, don't let us ruin our appetite for you. Father, I pray that we would know you indeed and that we would desire to pursue after you. Give us a taste, a taste that will open up Open up our taste buds to know that there's got to be more and that we need more and we cannot settle any longer. Thank you so much that intimacy with you is what fills us, what gives us the abundant life and is also what protects us from the schemes of the enemy, what protects us from the things of this world. God, you are good. Thank you that your love endures. Thank you for your grace that never runs out on me. And as in your son's name, his beautiful name, his powerful name, Jesus Christ. Amen.